If you type Bigfoot into a Google search, you get about 43 million hits. Click on the Wikipedia page. You'll be led through the history of the Big Furry Sasquatch, the most reputable sightings, including pictures, the science behind it. Could he be a remnant of Giantopithecus? This is the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And fess up, we've all been there. Oftentimes, the truth is less interesting than these wild conspiracy theories that people sort of adhere to and latch onto. People love that stuff. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we're talking about the weird things that people actually believe. But first, speaking of conspiracy theories, fake news is in the running for the phrase of, well, the last three years. Journalists are responsible for helping us separate fact from fiction. But it's hard for journalism to do its job when American trust in the media has plummeted in recent years. Mallory Perryman is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University's Richard T. Robertson School of Media and Culture. She's taken a closer look at media bias and our trust in the news. I think we have what I would call a connection problem. We have a lot of good journalism being done in this country, perhaps some of the best journalism we've seen in decades. We have um, a very informed audience. We have people who are interested in politics. We have people who are willing to learn and want to know more about the world around them, and we're more connected than ever, and yet we have a disconnect between journalists and the audience, where the audience is not necessarily understanding what journalists are doing. You hear a lot about how journalists don't necessarily understand the audience, and I agree with that to an extent, but journalists are always trying to understand what their audience needs and what it wants, and yet we have a misunderstanding on part of the audience of what it is journalists do and their role in democracy and how important they are And I think maybe we just have a problem where journalists aren't necessarily communicating as well as they could what important role they fill in everybody's day-to-day lives. I'm really interested in what you notice with your own students. How long have you taught? I ask that because I wonder if you've seen a shift even since when you first started teaching this subject and now. I absolutely have noticed a shift. I started teaching journalism in uh, 2000. Seven, when I was still a student myself, training younger journalists at the University of Missouri. And now fast forward to today, where I have my own classrooms. Um, I've stuck with broadcast journalism students, so that part's been consistent. But what has been different is how these students think about journalism. They're very much advocacy-minded. They care very deeply about social issues in a way that I perhaps young people have always <laughs> felt deeply about social issues. But these students are willing to take that advocacy and put it into journalism, which cuts both ways in terms of is that a good thing or bad thing for journalism? Um, You have this traditional view of of objective, neutral journalists um, producing regular day-turn style news. And then you've got this new space that the Internet has opened up, podcasting has opened up, um, new revenue models, new types of media have opened up where – There is a place for journalism that cares about the world around it and tells stories that advocate for 
uh, the voiceless and for the climate and for uh, policies that benefit people. I do see a shift toward that. They, they really feel very deeply uh, that the stories they tell should matter. So would you say that we were maybe in a moment with sweeping generational differences between this generation and the people before when it comes to perceptions of news, the media, and reporters? Oh, I wonder, does everybody always think they're in the midst of a sweeping generational moment? I don't know. Uh, but it certainly feels that way to me. Uh, yeah. Because these students, in a way that, you know, I, I always had a computer in my house. Um, and, you know, my father can't say the same thing. Um, you know, and his father can't say that they always had a telephone in the house. So, yes, in that way, the technology has changed. But even more so than that... These students will always think of media in a way that we just don't. We, we say, you know, where do you get news? Oh, I get it on Facebook. To my students, that's incredibly normal. In fact, for many Americans, that's becoming a major and maybe even the main way of access to news. You know, Pew Research Center periodically asks Americans where they get news. And you've seen, of course, increased access to news online, but especially social media. And a lot of people lament that. They're like, we don't want people getting news through Facebook, because obviously Facebook is curated by an algorithm. You're choosing your friends, and you're choosing news outlets to follow. But in a lot of ways, you're being exposed to perhaps more headlines than you would have ever seen, um, unless you flip through the daily paper, and people just don't access news that way. So it cuts both ways. Uh, my students are seeing news, and I'll, I'll ask them, where do you guys get news from? And they kind of have to rack their brains because they don't log in in the morning and sign on to the Washington Post. That's just not how they consume news. But they do log in in the morning and scroll through their Twitter feed. They probably see 10, 12 headlines first thing in the morning, and they don't even realize they're consuming news in that way until I point it out. Because to them, it's just, it's a habit, but it's a new habit that's very different from the habits of the past. You've also researched the extent to which each of us thinks our political opponents get their news from a bubble. So liberals think those conservatives are feasting on a daily diet of Fox News and Sean Hannity. Conservatives are convinced liberals are feasting on the New York Times and Rachel Maddow. What do you find? Is are those biases true? That is, um, it is absolutely true. There is a concern in this country about the idea of selective exposure. And it, it happened, especially with the internet, now that you have, you have more news options than ever before. So you think, well, where do people go and get news? Well, of course they, they go, liberals flock to MSNBC and conservatives must flock to Fox News. And that's somewhat true. Um, if you give a conservative a headline choice and they have to choose a story between Fox News and MSNBC, they are more likely to choose the headline from Fox News. But it's not true that people ignore news that doesn't fit their views. What is true is that a vast majority of Americans actually get news from a few major traditional news sources, ABC, NBC, CBS, um, you know, even to an extent CNN.com. Um, which is one of the most popular places to get news online. So most Americans are getting, you know, pretty neutral, traditional, objective news sources that don't really, certainly nonpartisan. Um, but the problem, as you mentioned, is that everybody seems to think that everybody else has different news habits. They, 
They think liberals believe that conservatives are feasting, as you say, on Fox News, and conservatives believe that liberals are only consuming liberal news, which is easy for them to believe because they tend to believe that most media outlets are liberal. They believe that their opponents are consuming news that is only making them more extreme. And that is a problem in a country where we already have very, very high levels of political polarization. Talk to me about your deep dive into an annual poll of people's perception of bias in the media and whether that's changed over time. So Gallup is a major polling agency that has been polling public attitudes about media for a long time. And they first did this in the 1970s and found that about over 75 percent of Americans had a great deal of trust in media. Today, that number is about 45 percent of Americans, which sounds low because, of course, it's it's less than half of Americans who have what we would consider a positive view of the American media. But that is up a little bit. Our lowest point was in 2016, believe it or not, uh, where we had, you know, around 30, 35 percent of Americans having a great deal of trust in media. Um, and that's that's gone up a little bit, largely because of Democrats. I believe today you have over 70 percent of Democrats with a positive view of media and only 20 percent of Republicans with that confidence in media. So we definitely have a partisan divide that has always been true to an extent. If you look at the graph over time, conservatives have always had lower opinions of a media in the Gallup poll, but uh, the divide is starker now than it ever has been before. Let's talk about a tricky issue. Um, <laughs> much covered in the news, maybe less talked about generally, but... As reporters started to look at Donald Trump and debate among themselves whether they thought he was racist or should be called a racist, it seems like the media began to change. And as reporters decided that it was a fair label, I think you had massive change in the public perception of whether reporters were deciding to be activists. I think that was a turning point. The comment that President Trump made about the congresswoman, the go back to where you came from comment that was, you know, objectively was a racist comment. But the question of whether to call that a racist comment in reporting was, I think, a turning point. There were a lot of smart people who have been in journalism for a long time who disagreed about whether coverage should explicitly label that a racist comment. And there were very good points made on both sides of that argument. And part of it was, what does labeling it accomplish, right? Do we, does it do anybody any good? Does it serve the public to label it a racist comment? Or are we turning people off to our coverage and not letting them listen to the explanation of why it was wrong? And on the other hand, <laughs> there's no question about it. That is a racist trope, um, whether President Trump knew it or not. Um, the comment itself, you know, calling him a racist based on that, I think, um, might be questionable. But it was a comment that should be called out for what it is. But is it the media's job to call that out? Or do we allow someone else to call it that and we quote them or invite them on our shows? That is an open question. And it's a good one. And I'm glad that journalists are thinking about it. However, people chose to cover that story 
what was important was not necessarily whether you called it racist or not, but whether you explained the history of such a comment and whether you put it in context. So if the public, especially conservatives, now perceive great media bias where they had not before or mistrust, is the media biased? So we have a problem declaring whether bias exists in the media at large, and studies have come up with different conclusions. Most studies end up concluding that if they look at a vast majority of major news organizations, that there is not a an overt left or right bias in coverage. But as you mentioned, some of the concern is that, especially among liberals, the concern is that there's a corporate bias in news. And then on the right, you find that a lot of the concern is about individual journalists and that People on the conservative side of the spectrum believe that journalists aren't like them and that they're out of touch. My counter to that is that there may be more liberals than conservatives in newsrooms, um, but that doesn't mean that the coverage is left-leaning. I think sometimes even when journalists have left-leaning opinions, they in fact maybe overcompensate by trying really, really hard to make sure that they are being neutral and objective in their coverage and seeking out perspectives that are very unlike their own. But it's it's difficult to know without a content analysis of every news story and every journalist in America whether there is this sense of bias in the news. What we do know is that people think it's there, but the problem is that people on the left and the right both think it's biased. <laughs> so well, what's the answer? Do people trust local reporters more than they trust so-called national reporters? Absolutely. People trust local reporters at a much higher rate. Pew Research Center recently did a study where they looked at attitudes toward local reporters all across the country. And you can look at the data um, for your county, for your state. It's really illuminating here in, in, in Richmond, Virginia right now. And local news trust is, is much higher than the national level, which is a great thing. How should we improve trust in the news? How can we shore up our democracy by making sure people feel safe in consuming the works of hopefully relatively objective reporters? (laughs) Last year, the Knight Foundation, in conjunction with Gallup, did a study where they asked people, what's wrong with the news? Why don't you trust the news? And the top three answers were accuracy, concerns about accuracy, concerns about bias, and concerns about transparency, which seemed like such big topics. But the truth is that we actually do a really good job in those areas. If we are inaccurate, we issue a correction. If we're biased, we take that into account and we do a better job the next time. We're sort of a navel-gazing profession. We are constantly thinking about what we do and trying to do better. And we just do a poor job of communicating that to the public. I think we have a public relations problem in a lot of ways. And I think the number one way to improve trust in journalism is for journalists to get out there and say, here's what I do. Here's my process. I'm going to be completely open with you. I'm going to show you what I do. Here's why I interviewed this person and why I didn't interview this other person, probably because they didn't return my calls. They just need to be open with people about the process. And a lot of that is going to come from media literacy programs, showing people what it is that journalists do. It's amazing how much people don't understand about the profession. You know, they have to stand up for themselves. Journalists are very hesitant to do that sometimes because they don't want to make themselves the story. 
But I don't think of this as making themselves the story. This is just standing up for what you do. And if you, if you believe that what you do is important, and journalists do, then they should share that with those around them. Mallory Perryman, thank you for sharing your insights and with good reason. Thank you so much for having me. Mallory Perryman is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University's Richard T. Robertson School of Media and Culture. Coming up next, you might think you're not the conspiracy theory type, but have you ever crossed your fingers for luck? Where's the line between all in and just a little superstitious? Jason Hart is a psychologist at Christopher Newport University, and he's fascinated by, as he puts it, why people believe weird things. He and his students explore ghosts, psychic experiences, and conspiracy theories to better understand why we are drawn to unscientific explanations for the world around us. Jason, you teach a senior psychology seminar called The Psychology of Weird Beliefs. What do you explore with students? Well, we explore the paranormal, we explore pseudoscience, and plain nonsense. Usually we talk about things like ESP, ghosts, talking with the dead. Um, We also go into what I, I call denialism, so people who deny evolution, people who deny the safety of vaccines, people who deny climate change. And a recent addition to the class has been uh, fake news. Do we as humans all believe in weird things? It's just that some of us are um, a little bit more scientific in explaining our strange and false beliefs. Right. Our our default is really not to think scientifically. It's, It's easier to rely on cognitive shortcuts, what we call heuristics, Um, They're very efficient, but they're not always correct. Um, So when we do spend more effort thinking about things, it's not a fail-safe. We can still be wrong, but we're less likely to be wrong if we've processed the information in a thoughtful um, and rational way. But yes, we all have weird beliefs. Even myself, I have to catch myself all the time. When I get on a plane, a superstition is a weird belief, like the fact that when I get on a plane and I take my right hand and slap the side of the plane before I enter it, it's a weird belief. I mean, it's not going to keep me safe, but so far it's worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think that we evolved over eons so that our weird beliefs are actually adaptive, that in some ways they help us survive? Yes, um, I think so. I mean, we are pattern-seeking creatures. Okay, if I do this, something's going to happen. So if I touch a hot stove, I'm going to get burned. You've made that connection, that pattern. We make patterns all the time. However, some of those patterns are incorrect. In my class, we talk about two types of errors, if you will. A type one error, one in which you believe in something that's probably not true. And that would be something like believing in the ability of people talking with the dead. The second error, a type two error, is failing to believe something that is probably true. So like evolution would fall into that category, as well as the safety of vaccines. Do you think understanding our beliefs that are wrong and why we have them relates to how we see political choices? Well, I think we need to take a step back and and think about how people see the world in general. So a worldview, if you will, you pick the party that best supports your worldview. And when you have a party that does not support your worldview, what can you do? Well, you basically say, well, they're the ones who are wrong, which makes you feel better when you attack the other group. 
and you think you're right. Give me examples of where you could see illustrations of worldview slash weird beliefs or false beliefs for liberals, and then the same thing for conservatives. Hmm. Okay, so if we're thinking about a worldview where you believe that the, the Bible is inerrant, you would probably be more likely to believe that dinosaurs and humans coexisted. And so if you're thinking about how it differentiates between Republicans and Democrats, if you look at the data, um, Republicans are more likely to deny evolution than are Democrats. If we look at the other side of the ledger, Democrats are more likely to believe that GMOs, uh, genetically modified organisms, are, are dangerous. Do you have your students address politics in the classroom? Yes, I, I do. And so I, I make sure that we, we pick on everyone. Yeah. Because as I alluded to earlier, everyone has weird beliefs. So political orientation does not shelter you or buffer you from holding weird beliefs. Neither does intelligence level. We all have weird beliefs. But I do ask them to write a letter to a politician who's made a, a statement that is not consistent with the evidence. It's really difficult to change a person's mind. It's even even harder uh, when you're condescending or you come off as arrogant or you're attacking them. So don't be a jerk yeah. to people. It's kind, cordial, um, not condescending, um, but also informative for the person who's reading the letter. How did you first become interested in the whole psychology of the weird beliefs we all hold? Well, it was also actually late arriving because uh, as a younger kid, I was a, a big believer in the Loch Ness Monster. And I was just really into what we call cryptozoology now, the study of hidden animals. So Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, um, that was my jam as a kid. Yeah. I loved it. And I love dinosaurs too. So the fact that maybe a dinosaur was sort of hidden in the jungles of the Congo really appealed to me. One of the uh, books that really changed my life is Carl Sagan's A Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. And I just picked it up on a whim, and it really changed my life and, and how I teach. He really had a call to arms about how pseudoscience and, and the belief in, in the paranormal were creeping in the darkness, if you will, and science needed to be that light to keep that darkness at bay. Give me a litany of the kinds of true weird beliefs that we all know are out there that people do fall prey to. Well, I mean, that's the thing about it. Conspiracy theories are really interesting because some conspiracies are actually true. There was a conspiracy to assassinate JFK, for example, or to fly planes into the World Trade Center buildings. That, that's a conspiracy. What differentiates a real conspiracy from a fake one is evidence and logic. You can have facts that are part of a false conspiracy. For example, the 9-11 truthers believe that jet fuel does not burn at a high enough temperature to melt steel. Now, that's true. However, what they're failing to acknowledge is that steel will weaken under those temperatures, and there's other things in that building that burned which can increase the temperature to a point where steel can give way. Right. Oftentimes, the truth is less interesting than these wild conspiracy theories that people sort of adhere to and latch onto. Are some of us more likely to have these so-called weird beliefs than others? For instance, are creative people more likely to have these beliefs than others? Yes. Um, some great data um, about this out there where 
creative people are really good at finding patterns. So if you're a a scientist on the cutting edge, you're seeing things that maybe other scientists don't see, but you're also more likely to find patterns that are not real. We actually did a study looking at this with our CNU students where we had them complete a measure of creativity and also a scale that assessed paranormal and pseudoscience beliefs. And what we found was the more creative you are, the more likely you are to believe weird things. The less creative you are, the less likely you are to believe in weird things. So there seems to be a, an association between creativity, which has its benefits, but it also may have its drawbacks. Creativity means sees patterns? Yeah, we all are pattern-seeking creatures. It's just that creative people are more apt to see patterns that the person who's less creative is not likely to see. Uh-huh. So if you're in the lab and a scientist and you're highly creative, you might take more risk to look for a pattern that may or may not be real, whereas a person who's less creative is less likely to take that risk. That's interesting because I think about alien abduction, for instance, mm-hmm. or even the whole concept of aliens. I could see a super scientist looking for life on distant planets, having very elaborate visions of what life may look like outside the planet Earth. Whereas you could also picture someone that has very little science background, super confident that there are alien abductions. Right. And we got to make a distinction here. There are legitimate scientists uh, who are looking for life outside of Earth. The problem is, is that if you believe that aliens have actually interacted with us or have abducted some of us, that's where we, we say as a skeptic, well, show me the evidence. Right. And most of the evidence that they have is anecdotal, which is really not good evidence at all. What about these weird beliefs as portrayed and perpetuated through popular culture and movies? Well, if you think about a science book, you go to Barnes & Noble, for example, and you look at the science section, I mean, the real science section, how many bookcases do they offer for that? But if you look at like the new age stuff or sort of that young adult fiction where you're talking about sparkly vampires and things of that nature... There's a lot more space dedicated to those books than the Barnes Noble. And the reason why is that people want to learn about or they're more attracted to that than they are science. People love that stuff. I like some of that stuff. Let me ask you this. Knowing what you know about false beliefs and weird beliefs, would you rather we have them or not? Well, it, some weird beliefs I would say are less damaging than our other beliefs. <laughs> Um, so, in other words, if you believe in ghosts and it does not cause you psychological or social um, harm, like you're not up at night with anxiety about, oh, there's a ghost that can affect me, but you, you, you entertain the possibility that there are ghosts out there, I think that's okay. I don't want to be the skeptic that rains on your parade. However, if you don't believe in the safety of vaccines, that impacts me and my kids. If someone doesn't vaccinate themselves or their kids. So when someone's a vaccine denier, that carries more weight with me than someone who believes in ghosts. I just encourage people to get outside of their bubble. It's uncomfortable. Do spend time with people who hold beliefs that are not like your own. Really listen to them. Don't you know, try to argue with them. Listen first and be empathetic about that other person's position. Jason Hart is a psychologist at Christopher Newport University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. Coming up next is an encore presentation of our conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Rick Atkinson. In 2003, Rick Atkinson was embedded with General Petraeus in the 101st Airborne in Iraq. In the middle of the night, he learned he'd won his third Pulitzer Prize. I, I hung up and I'm um, looking around and everybody's asleep. So the watch officer was a young lieutenant and he was watching The Simpsons. And I went in and I said, Eric, I need to tell somebody, so I'm going to tell you since you're the only one awake now. I just learned that I won the po- <laughs> I learned that I won the Pulitzer Prize for history. And he looks away from the Simpsons for about three seconds, looks at me, and says, "Oh, that's nice," <laughs> and goes back to watching the Simpsons, which was absolutely the the right response. <laughs> I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Rick Atkinson. Rick, you spent much of your career writing about the military and your childhood on military bases. What was that like? I've heard you say, we were Bedouins. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, military families tend to be nomads. Uh, we moved every somewhere between one and three years. Um, and uh, the saving grace, I suppose, is that everyone else is in the same boat. It seems perfectly normal when you're a kid, of course. And um I think that the advantages to it are that you see the world. You uh, are forced to become somewhat self-reliant, I think. Um, You see a lot of different perspectives on things. Um, The disadvantage is that you have no hometown. I, uh, you know, when I'm asked uh, what my hometown is, I always stumble because it's it's a difficult question to answer. You almost went to West Point after high school. What changed your mind? Yeah, I did. I, I, having grown up in the Army, I really never had any uh, aspirations to do anything other than to go to West Point and follow my father's uh, footsteps into the Army, even though he was not a West Pointer. I applied for a, an appointment and got it. And um, spring of my senior year, I began thinking about it for the first time, belatedly, <laughs> and really decided that it was not for me. Uh, you had to be an engineering major then. It was uh, all male still then. Uh, That seemed very unappealing. Uh, It was the height of the Vietnam War. Kent State happened that spring. My father had just come back from Vietnam. So the notion of uh, committing yourself at the age of 17 to four years at West Point and then a five-year commitment minimal in the Army afterwards uh, just didn't seem like the right fit for me. And so I I really did decide at the last minute uh, to turn down the appointment and and do something else. I wanted to uh, read English, study literature, and you, you couldn't really do that at West Point at that time. How did you end up writing for a small newspaper in Kansas then? Well, I asked myself that on a number of occasions. My <laughs> father was stationed in Kansas uh, after I got out of graduate school, and I had no uh, money, no job, no prospects, no skills, nothing, uh, maybe a little ambition. My mother, who was very worried about me, prevailed upon me to call a man named Lee Porter, who was the editor of the Topeka newspaper. And uh, I called, and he was kind enough to take my call and said, I don't have any openings uh, here in the big city of Topeka, but I do know of an entry-level reporting position in Pittsburgh. 
And I said, oh, Pittsburgh, that'd be fine. My mom and dad are from Philadelphia. Mr. Porter said, not that Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, <laughs> Kansas. <laughs> so, and so I started working on the paper there, my first newspaper job. But it was the Kansas City Times, not long after, where you won your first Pulitzer. Uh, yeah, I, I moved after 16 months in Pittsburgh to Kansas City. I actually worked for the Kansas City Times, which was the morning paper, the Stars, the afternoon paper. And uh, I won the National Reporting uh, Pulitzer. I wrote about the West Point class of 1966. I wrote a four-part series about uh, that class. They lost more men in Vietnam than any other West Point class. You later turned that series into a book, the Long Gray Line, yes. Before that book, what had led you back to West Point to investigate and report on this class of 1966? There was a bit of serendipity, actually. My father's closest friend in the Army had a son, uh, Mike Fuller, who was in the class of 66. So one day we were driving to my brother's wedding in southeast Kansas, and he began telling me almost in a monologue about what had happened to his class, how they had arrived at West Point in July 1962, full of idealism, full of uh, John Kennedy idealism, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, uh, leaders of their generation, and determined to, to win the war in Vietnam, as it turned out. When they graduated in 66, they all went off to war, virtually without exception. And then, of course, uh, recognizing very quickly that something had uh, changed within the culture. The country was against the war. The country was against the warriors. And these young men, and they were all men then, 579 of them, who had uh, been leaders of their generation suddenly found that they were pariahs. It was an extraordinary heavy burden that uh, they were carrying long after the war, long after they had left West Point, in some cases long after they had left the Army. The class was, uh, was badly divided over the war. The class was badly divided over how to honor the dead, um, whether the wall was a black gash of shame, an open urinal, as Tom Carhart was saying, or as Jack Wheeler and others were saying, it was a work of genius that would resonate for generations to come. So these kinds of uh, cataclysmic frictions uh, were really evident in the class. How many of that class did die in Vietnam? 30 of them were killed. Why so many when they are to be the officers who are less in harm's way? Well, officers were not out of harm's way in Vietnam. You're talking about platoon leaders, lieutenants in a platoon leader's war. The Army was so hungry for young officers, it sent them straight to Vietnam. So they arrived there in many cases knowing how to march really well, which they'd learned at West Point, but not knowing a whole lot else about combat. There was one character named Buck Thompson. He was from Atchison, Kansas, and he was a, a famous figure at West Point. He was one of these radiant young men who catches everyone's attention, uh, has a knack for getting in trouble, but a bigger knack for getting out of it. Buck was there. He, he'd gotten married right out of uh, West Point. Uh, they can marry the day they graduate, and many do. Uh, he had a young son, and uh, Buck was at Hill 875, which was a ferocious firefight in Vietnam where several of his classmates were killed in that fight in the, in the central highlands around Dok Tho, surrounded basically by the enemy. 
uh, airstrikes are called in. The airstrikes are errant, and uh, Buck and a number of others were killed by friendly fire by our own Air Force. Uh, that story has stuck with me forever, and there are many like that. How much older than you are these men? Uh, they tend to be nine, ten years older than I am. They, uh, they're war babies, uh, born in 1943, 1944. For me, it was like having 579 older brothers. Um, and, of course, you know, now they're, they're well into their 70s, so they're beginning to, to pass uh, naturally. I always think of them as 18-year-olds arriving at West Point on our day, reception day. And so for me, they're really 18-year-olds uh, in the summer of 1962 forever. We spoke with a couple of the members of the West Point class of 66, Jeff Smith, Mike Fuller, and Lieutenant General George Crocker. This is what they said about you. I think he's now viewed as somewhat of an honorary member of our class. In fact, we've technically made him an honorary member of the class. He called me at home one evening and said he was a reporter for the Washington Post and was doing some research for an article. I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty busy studying here. He said, here's the deal. He said, you go talk to the public affairs officer about me, and if he gives me a thumbs up, you talk to me, and if he doesn't, I'll go away. And so I did, and uh, he gave me a glowing report of Rick Atkinson. He characterized him as... If you like the truth, you will love Rick Atkinson. Rick has a marvelous ability to gain the confidence of people he interviews and to recreate scenes uh, and capture what was going on, not only uh, in fact, but also in the minds of the individuals who are conducting uh, the activities. He makes you feel as if you were there. He wrote our personal history. It was, it was our story and we are eternally grateful. Those guys really love you. <laughs> well, I really love them, too. Uh, the, the book, The Long Gray Line, ends with the chaplain, James David Ford, who'd been chaplain at West Point for almost 20 years, eventually became the chaplain of the U.S. House of Representatives also for 20 years. And he describes how he had, in some cases, baptized these young men at West Point as young adults. Uh, he had married them. Uh, and then in some cases, he'd also buried them. And he ends by talking about, I love these men. And I feel the same way. I, I have grown to uh, not only to admire them, but to have a deep reservoir of, of uh, affection and love for them. The next Pulitzer that you won was as part of a team with the Washington Post for a series that ran in 1998 investigating the D.C. police force shootings. Yeah, I had come back from uh, being a foreign correspondent, a war correspondent in Berlin, and I ran investigative reporting at the Washington Post, which is a job, as you might imagine, they take very seriously and have since Watergate. One of the stories was about fatal shootings by the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. And in the end, uh, we were able to assert that uh, reckless gunplay, that was the phrase that we used in the first sentence of the first story, reckless gunplay had marked the behavior of the D.C. Police Department for a number of years. We determined irrefutably that 
these young men and women, they were frequently um, in their early 20s, mid-20s, were put out onto the dangerous streets of the District of Columbia. And this is a time when crime was uh, much more serious than it is uh, today in Washington without having the proper uh, preparation for all of the things that police officers in a violent city can face. It was a brilliant series, I have to say, on behalf of the reporters who were uh, putting it together. It won the Pulitzer Prize, the gold medal for public service, which is often considered the highest of the Pulitzers awarded each year. It was a great um, instance of the power of the press, I think, to affect reform and to affect change. Like the rest of us, you're now seeing this rash of videos of police shootings that have emerged across the country. How did being part of that intensive series change your perspective on the current issues? Obviously, some of the same problems that we uncovered persist around the country. The consequence is that the relationship between those sworn to serve and protect and those who are to be served and protected is so painfully at odds with what you would want that kind of relationship to be, uh, so that you find extraordinary mistrust of police forces. And again, that makes the cop's job all the harder. It's hard enough under the best circumstances. And when people don't trust you, uh, that makes it almost unbearable. You spent several months with General Petraeus in Iraq in 2003. How were you able to get the access to General Petraeus to become embedded with him? Uh, Don Graham, the uh, owner of the Washington Post at that time, he asked if I would be willing to deploy. I said, okay. So I called Dave Petraeus. He said, being Dave Petraeus, sure, come down. Come down anytime you want. <laughs> uh, Petraeus and I, in his Black Hawk helicopter, flew into uh, uh, southern Iraq together, just as an enormous sandstorm, which eventually lasted three days, began. So we're flying with zero visibility into hostile territory. And uh, we landed at a remote hellhole in in southern Iraq. We'd heard that some bad things had happened that day. There was a young soldier named Jessica Lynch who had been captured Uh, There had been an an attack by Army helicopters the previous night, which had gone badly. They'd been shot to pieces. And Petraeus' face, not eight inches from mine, said, tell me how this ends. Tell me how this ends. You were with Petraeus in Iraq when you heard you won the Pulitzer for the first book in your World War II trilogy. I was. Of all places, we were outside the town of Najaf, and by my satellite phone, I called in my story to the Washington Post. And um, the editor I was talking to said, hang on a minute. And finally, uh, Len Downey, who was the executive editor, came on. And he said, we weren't sure when we'd be able to talk to you again, so we just want you to know that the Pulitzer Board today awarded you the Pulitzer Prize in history. Well, I was really gobsmacked, I must say, uh, (laughs) because I was just not thinking about that. I didn't know it was Pulitzer Day and all the rest of it. I I hung up, and I'm looking around, and everybody's asleep. So the watch officer was a young lieutenant, and he was watching The Simpsons. And I went in, and I said, Eric, I need to tell somebody, so I'm going to tell you, since you're the only one awake now. I just (laughs) learned that I won the the Pulitzer Prize for history. 
And he looks away from the Simpsons for about three seconds, looks at me and says, oh, that's nice. (laughs) 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 And goes back to watching the Simpsons, which was absolutely the the right response. You're now working on a book about the American Revolution. I sort of yearn to know from you that we are still the Americans we once were, good or bad, that, that we are a certain people as distinct from others, <laughs> and that yeah. some of that is good. <laughs> yeah, some of it is good, and I, and I think that's true. I think that's a legitimate aspiration. Uh, my uh, study of uh, who we were in 1775, well, first of all, we're a very fractious people. <laughs> uh, and uh, to the point of, uh, you know, the American Revolution is first and foremost a civil war. And uh, we were perfectly willing to kill our neighbors in that war, uh, just as we were in 1861. Uh, So you see that the depth of passion that uh, flows through this people is, in fact, it is a a boiling blood. But you also see these extraordinary traits that we still cling to of a belief in, uh, in diversity, a belief in individual dignity a belief in compromise. Sometimes you wonder today, if we lost that? Well, that's what the Founding Fathers were all about. As rigid as they were in uh, separating themselves from the mother country, virtually everything that they do in the cause of both the revolution and consequently in the cause of forming the new republic is an act of compromise remembering that periodically is a good thing for us, that those who cannot compromise are so rigid and brittle that they're on the losing end of history. It's not how history has moved forward in this country. Does does the American military moral code hold? Do you think that it is working for us? Well, I, I write about war Uh, not because I'm particularly interested in battles per se or the weaponry or uh, anything other than the characters who are involved, because I I do believe that war and the incredible intensity, the stress of combat is a revealer of character. It's important not to uh, glamorize either war, obviously, or the notion that somehow we are more moral as a fighting people than others. Now, there was plenty of killing of prisoners, of German and Italian prisoners and and Japanese prisoners in the Pacific in World War II. And I write about it to, to some extent. There are a number of atrocities, rapes of French women in Normandy, for example, that uh, belie the notion that somehow we are simply liberators who have come here uh, sowing peace and uh, restoring the good people of France or Italy or wherever to their antebellum peaceful existence. It's important to understand that war is corrosive and that it makes good soldiers do bad things and it makes bad soldiers do horrible things. Uh, And that when we, as a people, decide that we're going to send our young men and women off to war, that corrosion is part of what we have committed them to. And we see that with the the examples of atrocities that have been committed in Afghanistan and Iraq. Are they representative of the soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines who've 
been fighting there for all these years now. No, they're not representative at all. But it is part of the landscape of combat. And the longer you are in it and the more frustrating the circumstances are, the more corrosive uh, the effects of that kind of uh, circumstance, the stress um, changes soldiers who are subjected to it. So, you know, my feeling is that um, all in all, we have as a people over centuries now tried to adhere to civilized standards of warfare. There are rules, and we punish those who violate those rules. But uh, you're kidding yourself if you think, first of all, that um, we are better than some others. Uh, and you're kidding yourself if you believe that you're asking 23-year-old soldiers to be perfect in their behavior when they are scared to death every day they're in combat. It's not enough to say, well, they volunteered. It's a volunteer army. That's not enough. That's not good enough. You have to feel that you have skin in the game as a citizen. You have to feel that, uh, you know, it's as if you're sending your own sons or daughters off to war. And uh, we've lost a substantial portion of that, I fully believe, over, over recent years where it's just easy to kind of turn away and to get on with your life. You applaud them when you see them at... Uh, at uh, Washington Nationals games in the fifth inning when the veterans are introduced or at a hockey game and they're introduced in uh, one of the intermission periods and you clap for them and you feel good about them and then you forget about it because you're not required to think any deeper than that. How would you like to be remembered if you had any say in it? Um, well, I'd like to be remembered first and foremost, I think, as a, as, a, as a good father, as a good husband, as a good friend. I'm proud of uh, the, the books that I've written and the books still to come, I hope. You'd like to see on your gravestone uh, something the equivalent of um, he, he, was a, he was a good friend. He was a good uh, father. Beloved younger brother of the West Point <laughs> class of 66. <laughs> That's right, and I'll always be younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rick Atkinson, thank you. I look forward to seeing you at the Virginia Festival of the Book. Thanks, Sarah. I look forward to that myself. Rick Atkinson has won three Pulitzer Prizes throughout his career as a journalist and historian. This program has been made possible in part by a major grant from the 2016 Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative and by the law firm of McGuire Woods, also the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzyk, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Deb Farmer of WHRV and Steve Clark at VPM News. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.